I'm Carrie Miller. Each week, I have a brand new episode of Big Books and Bold Ideas, a show where readers meet writers. You can catch it on Fridays or stream it anytime you're ready to listen. But every week, we also give you a deep track, a conversation with a writer from the archives. Now, you may hear a writer whose work gives context to the fresh episode, or you may hear a previous show with the same author. And I hope that will give you a sense of the arc of the writer's creative expression. You're here because you care about books and reading. Thank you so much for listening. Minnesota Public Radio, I'm Carrie Miller. This hour, going deep with photographer David Dubelay. Mr. Dubelay has been donning a mask and flippers and descending into what he calls the secret garden of the sea. Since he was a gangly 12-year-old with a brownie camera and unflagging curiosity, he's photographed fearsome sharks and spine-cheeked clownfish. He's documented the splendor of coral reefs, but also the sabotage that's been done by chemicals and pollution and warming oceans. He wrote in the introduction to his recent book, Great Barrier Reef, a rainforest may support more species than a coral reef, but to the untrained eye, the forest is a mysterious dark place among shadows cast by a towering canopy. A coral reef glows. David Dubelay is considered to be one of the best underwater photographers in the world. He's the author of six books, and he's also a contributor to National Geographic magazine. And he joins me in the studio this morning. Good to have you in. Carrie, it's a pleasure being here. Mr. Dubelay will be speaking and showing his photographs at the State Theater in Minneapolis tonight at 7.30. That is open to the public, and it's part of the National Geographic Explorer series. Do you remember what you took pictures of that first time that you took your little camera and went down underneath the surface of the water? I was, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, which has usually brown water lapping at its shores, and occasionally in, in September when the west wind blows, it turns green. And there's horseshoe crabs and striped bass and people's feet. You know, 12 years old, you look at everything. Uh, it's very Frank Sinatra's kind of diving. It's sort of if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> it's a good training ground. Yeah. Huh? A, a publisher of a diving magazine had something interesting to say about you. He said other photographers will go for the action shots, but he's telling stories with his pictures. He's revealing something about life. Does that surprise you to hear that, or do do you think that's true? Is that the is that the intention? I think the intention of all photographers, it's the secret and very passionate and very secret intention of all photographers, is very, is very selfish. They want to make pictures that please themselves. Good photography is about photography. Uh, the story and the pictures have to follow, but you have to have, you have to have that visual uh, sense, a visual hook, if you will. I don't like that term, but uh, you have to grab people and make them understand that there's something more, there's something strange going on here visually, and then something strange going on physically. And, of course, if all everything works together, it's an emotional experience looking but, at an image. But do you think you're telling a story about that has a greater meaning about life? Or are you saying, this is something so rare, so beautiful, so unusual, you just have to look at it? I think, and... and, and Making that very sentence, Carrie, you're actually you are telling the story almost automatically. Great pictures tell great stories. Uh, lesser pictures tell lesser stories. And occasionally there'll be a, a picture 
that tells a story without having uh, without having being great or wonderful or incredibly um, sophisticated visually, and those pictures you remember too. We were talking about your. We have your book, your your most recent book, The Great Barrier Reef, and I was telling you that one of the photographs that I love most in that book, maybe and it's maybe it's not the photograph that most people turn to because there are more spectacular pictures in the book, but it's this picture of the yellow coral tree that you took with a diver kind of up in the upper what left quadrant of that photograph and it just ha- just had so much serenity in that photograph. Well, Carrie, thank you for that. Uh a soft coral tree is something that is a wonderful uh, creature on a reef. Remember, corals are animals, too. But a soft coral tree is a coral that is literally filled with water. Uh, think of it as an enormous broccoli that has psychedelic colors, if, if you will. <laughs> doesn't sound very romantic, you know. But in, this, in the branches and in this giant tree, and they can grow to six or seven feet in certain places. Mm-hmm. You have to have the right conditions, good water, clear water non-polluted water, if you will, um, deep and with a certain amount of shadow, and food, a food source going by, so that has to be current. But in the in the branches of these trees, there's tiny little uh, fish called gobies, which live their lives uh, picking out the detritus that falls on the coral, perfectly camouflaged. They lay the eggs in the branches. They, there's sometimes whole groups of them. So it's an en- enormous layer upon layer of life in a coral reef system. That's also a photograph that really exemplifies what you wrote in the introduction to that book, which is that coral reefs glow. And you mentioned that there are shadows in these trees of of coral. Um, When you're underwater and you're taking photographs, how conscious are you? How conscious do you have to be of the light and the shadows to make sure you're you're really getting the, the... vividness of what you're seeing. It's very funny when you talk about light and shadow, because that's what I like the best about underwater, this play of light and shadow, and the way light falls into the sea. Uh, Underwater photography is about water. When I was a child in New Jersey growing up, the first time I put a face mask on, is you have a vision over water. Cousteau wrote about this. He wrote about seeing in, in a, a small beach in, in the south of France in the 1930s. He had a pair of goggles, and he looked over water, and he saw the beach and the streetcar and people and telephone poles. And then he put his head underwater, and he wrote this line. He said, civilization vanished with one last bow. And as a 12-year-old, it was exactly that line that I loved. It was the great escape. I was free. I was floating. And that's the thing about uh, diving. You literally fly. You have no more dreams of flying the minute you start diving. But to come back to the light and shadow, what is it about the way light travels, uh, shimmers, underwater that you find so interesting? And, and again, how difficult is that to actually capture that on film? Uh, it's always a problem capturing anything on film or now in the days of uh, digital photography. It's always that difficulty of getting that moment and the moment that plays out against this curtain of light and shadow. 
I always look at the light. The light goes into the sea in very peculiar ways. It comes in in a soft blanket. If you roll on your back, it shimmers. The underside of a surface, even if a swimming pool, is like a mirror mm -hmm. in one degree. And then lower, it looks like a kind of a, um, a Tudor glass window where everybody is, sh is shaky and wobbly like a Picasso painting looking straight up. You go to about 30 degrees, it becomes a, a sheet of uh, mercury. And when people jump in, it's like going through uh, a looking glass. Uh, water has that quality, and it is most of our planet. And here in uh, the, the world of 10,000 lakes, every lake has and that more. secret quality. <laughs> and more. Every place has that secret, wonderful quality. Have you been places uh, in bodies of water where there is no light? No light penetrates the water. I'm not much of a cave diver because I have that over overwhelming sense of claustrophobia. I have problems in elevators when they stop, but other people love it. And when you go into a place that's darker than dark, in other words, an, an underwater cave in a dark world, in a cave, there is, um, there is that overwhelming sense of uh, doom, as it were. Uh, I remember going into a place in South Australia where they have uh, sinkholes in the middle of farmers' fields. It used to be one great... Uh, great ancient coral reef and then the water came in and drilled basically flowing water drilled holes under the ground there's places where a horse stumbled into a hole a farmer tried to fill in the hole the hole turned out to be an enormous cave system wow. that grew underground I went into a sinkhole that was um, 40 feet from the lip to the um, base of the water uh, the start of the water rather and then it made a dog leg down and I got down to about 120 feet and realized there was 120 feet or more, actually 160 feet of uh, of earth and stone, and on the top of that, cows over me. And I said, "This is not <laughs> nice." <laughs> but other people glory in that. You know, I think a lot of people imagine that when you're an underwater photographer, you're spending your time in primarily oceans and beautiful areas with lots of coral reefs and fish to take pictures of. But before we started, you were saying that you have been in Botswana at the end of a river that actually creates an oasis in the middle of this country. And that, that story was so interesting, I was hoping you'd tell it again, about how you found it and what, what was underneath the water. The Okavanga Delta, the vinyl uh, gasp of the Okavanga River, a river that rises in Angola, goes through Namibia, and then spends itself, I love this, in the sands of the Kalahari. Imagine a river that ends in a desert. That's amazing. The northern, uh, uh, northwest corner of Botswana. It creates, Carrie, literally this giant oasis. It's one of the great arcs of uh, animal life in Africa and therefore the world. But there is another factor to it. This water comes in a flood every year, starting in June, pulses down, and then finally reaches the very end of the delta in a spreading flood. And when it comes down, there is about a month, month and a half maybe, where in certain parts of the river, especially in the panhandle, the main portion of the river that before it becomes a delta, that it's deep enough and clear enough to make underwater pictures. And uh, in this clear water, we went there on, uh, on the recommendation of a very famous nature photographer, friend of ours, when we suggested the story in Geographic, said, we want you to do this, he said, to us as we were packing our bags, are you out of your minds? There's 
there's incredible dangerous things there. And I said, what could be more dangerous than a great white shark? And he said, try a crocodile. <laughs> Nile crocodiles are large. And they are fearsome things. And they are very, very frightening things. Um, we were protected because it was winter. That was the theory. And their um, metabolism is not... Uh, is that of a dinosaur they want to stay on the bank and stay warm so they were not spending a lot of time in the water but every place we went and every place we dove in forests of lilies and strange places under the banks of papyruses and across channels every place we went we went only once and never came back because when we came back to inspect the place where we were diving the day before we always found a Nile crocodile mm -hmm. large were there things under that water, David, that, that you'd never seen before just because of where it is and, and how this water is created? Oh, the, the, it was, it was an, a magical garden. Imagine a, a forest, like a kelp forest, made out of lilies. Well, the, the stalks of lilies are very thin, and they're like rubber bands. Almost, it was almost like diving in a forest of, of bungee cords because every movement you'd take, something would wrap around your fins and be yanked backwards. But the water was clear, and the undersides of the lilies were red and pink and green. And it was, uh, it was like a, a, an imaginary place. Uh, there were fish called nemways and, and other fish uh, called tiger fish that had interlocking great uh, fangs. It was beautiful. It was dangerous. It was menacing. Everything was over the underwater horizon. 20 feet away, visibility drops off. And beyond at 21st foot, you don't know what's there. At night, when we dove there, we would shine a light around. Somebody on the boat would always be on, on guard, shining a light and looking around. And you'd see the glowing eyes of crocodiles off in the distance, bit by bit, piece by piece. Here's two eyes there, two eyes there. Are they getting closer? It's time to get out of the water. Watch out. we got to move. We, you can't stay in the And I would go, I need one more picture, one more picture. And I'd say, David, get out. And Jennifer and I would eventually get out. Brad would get out. And it was... Um, it was always a, a, a constant, constant adventure with this tension, with these prehistoric dinosaurs looking at you and stalking you. If you're listening in this morning to mid-morning, and I hope you're not missing this conversation, with talking with underwater photographer David Dubelay. He's been shooting for the National Geographic. He travels the world and takes pictures of what's not just what's under the ocean, but if you've just heard the story that he was telling about what may be under the water of an oasis, in rivers and lakes and any body of water. And he is speaking tonight at the State Theater in Minneapolis, 7.30 p.m., as part of the National Geographic Explorer Series, and that is open to the, to the public. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, 1-800-242-2828 in the Twin Cities, 651-227-6000. If you're listening to us online this morning, go to minnesotapublicradio.org and click on Send a Question. Maybe you're curious about how... David actually works. Maybe you're curious about the kind of equipment that he uses. We'll talk a little bit about that. And David, I, one of the things that, that I want to ask you about is how you work when you're getting the kinds of shots that I saw in the book and that I've seen online of some of the sharks. And you have this amazing shot of this octopus swimming by. And I know they're they're kind of shy. Or you have these shots of fish that are 
head on and so close? Are you working from a distance with a long lens or are you right there as it looks in the photograph? Okay, the the problem underwater photography is you have to be much more personal, closer to a, a fish because of visibility. You can't use an ultra long lens. You can't hide in a blind with a 600 millimeter lens and, and photograph uh, bears eating salmon. You've literally got to be next to the bear. Uh, and if you want to see the whole bear, then you have to use a wide angle lens. If you want to see a detail, you can use a semi macro slight telephoto lens. Um, so you have to be next to things. Um, and that's the problem. Okay, I think we're having some kind of a phone problem okay. here where we're hearing the phones well, ringing, the phones ringing. <laughs> on the air, and I'm not but, sure uh, why, but we'll work on that. Continue. So underwater, uh, also there's other problems underwater. In the days of film, you couldn't change film underwater, no matter how fast you were. The water comes into the camera, the camera gets destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. You can't change lenses, which is the other critical thing. So we would go into the into the sea or into Botswana or everything with, with groups of, of systems like three or four or five camera systems and they were systems because each camera has two flashes on it and there's a third or fourth flash that we carry on our belts and, and both Jennifer and I shoot uh, and then help each other out so it's a it's basically going underwater making a camp of cameras choosing which camera you want to shoot and then going after everything for instance on a coral reef everything from a shrimp to a shark everything from a super macro situation to uh, a large animal coming into a, a dynamic uh, overall image of the coral reefs and of course the dynamic overall images quote unquote are the hardest ones to take because you can't back away from things and see great vistas we have an online question here from John in Oakdale who writes as a commercial photographer, I have been in awe of your work for years. Are you digital now? How many pounds of lighting do you dive with? <laughs> it's a good it's a good question. Yes, like everybody else, I'm facing the brave new world of digital photography with all its uh, techniques and most of its expenses, not most of all of its expenses, and it's a great uh, it's a great revolution and like all revolutions, it's both frightening and wonderful at the same time. Uh, yes, I'm using some digital cameras, mostly Nikons, um, and switching from film cameras. And lighting underwater is always a problem because you need lights that cover uh, 90 degrees at least. Uh, they're all battery powered. They don't have to be that particularly brilliant because no matter how much light you put into a situation, you're not going to light anything up that's 10 feet away without it turning uh, a blue-white color in the clearest water. Lighting is uh, a function of uh, putting lights in in a wide angle situation or putting lights in in a macro situation. So, ten cameras go out on a on a, on a large assignment. Twenty or twenty twenty strobes go out with them. Mm -hmm. They all go in boxes, and when the airlines see us coming, they rub their hands together and do dances <laughs> behind the counter. The extra cargo fees and, uh, and the extra cargo fees, and the magazine never gets pleased, and it's always a kind of an ulcerous life. Let's try the phones again here. 1-800-242-2828 in the Twin Cities, 651-227-6000. If you're online with us this morning, you can reach us by going to minnesotapublicradio.org and clicking on Send a Question. William Allard was here a while back, David, to talk about his work for National Geographic, and he 
talked about how important that moment of serendipity is, the, the moment that you really can't predict, that just happens in, in front of you and that you have to be quick to capture it. Um, I wonder if, if you have those moments underwater. I mean, what he's primarily talking about is photographing people, doing things that kind of forget that there's a photographer there. Is it different if, if, you're, if you're photographing fish? Bill Allard's photography is brilliant and extraordinary, and it is about light and color, but mostly about this moment. Uh-huh. He's wonderful, what Cartier-Bresson referred to as the decisive moment. Underwater, the decisive moment happens very, very quickly. A fish is about the fastest thing you'll ever see eating anything. So in my career of career, in my life from 12 years old to now, all those years, I have maybe in the files, Jennifer and I have, maybe a half a dozen pictures of a fish eating a fish. And obviously that's what their whole life is about, that and mating like our lives are. But um, So it's very difficult to capture. And there's another thing, too. Everything has to be lit underwater, uh, especially if you're working in color. And to do that, you have a large camera, even if it's a 35 millimeter, um, in a housing with a big dome on it with two strobes that you have to swivel around. It's bigger than a, a 4 by 5 uh, speed graphic, even bigger than what they used to have, those giant graph, uh, graph, uh, Graflex uh, cameras. So you can't raise it up to your eyes, swivel around, and make this instantaneous moment without even more serendipitous uh, situations. In other words, a, a situation that's not only serendipitous but takes a little bit longer. So are those moments very few and far between? They're not few and far between, really? but they're few and far between to capture. In other words, you see something you see out it. of the corner of your eye, but you're not going to get to it. You see something 100 yards away, and you can't put on a telephoto, 100 yards, 100 feet away, and you can't put on a telephoto lens and get to it. <laughs> Quick enough. Yeah, it's like, and it's swimming is sometimes swimming in jello, running in jello. It's, it's that kind of nightmarish trying to mo- moment. One of the other things that uh, Bill Allard talked about when he was here what, what were his ideas about color and light and shadows, and you mentioned that. And he traces uh, that back to his studies in art school, um, looking at, at paintings and looking at the way the artist used light in his work. I, I wonder if, given the fact that your photographs are full of such amazing color and light, if if that's been influential at all. It's been very influential. I was very lucky. I grew up in New York City. My uh, my father was a, a, a surgeon. He was he worked at the University Hospital in Bellevue in New York. And when I left, when I got out of school in the afternoon, I didn't live very far away from the Metropolitan Museum, so I would mm. go in there and just wander around and look at all the paintings all the time ever since uh, when I was eight, nine years old. And so there's always been... A, a basic art background to the way I look at things. And I had some very wonderful teachers like Carl Scherenz at, at Boston University talked a lot about shadow and light and, and chiaroscura effect of uh, way light falls on things. And that was an influence too. Are there paintings, David, that you can think of that that have that feel, that essence of what you're looking for when you're diving and, and photographing well the the first thing i can think of is i, I do like turner's work mm-hmm. very very much 
uh, I, I always looked at Winslow Homer. There was a wonderful picture. The Metropolitan had the famous Winslow Homer picture, the Gulf Stream, which I loved. I looked at Hooper, and I looked at Sheeler, and a lot of other people uh, in the modern in the Museum of Modern Art that had Christmas of, of light. And, of course, the um, chaotic sense of a Jackson Pollock is exactly what a coral reef looks like. Mm. Blink your eyes, and you'll see a living Jackson Pollock. If you want to torture a marine biology student, you say, follow one fish for 10 minutes. <laughs> and they go mad because you can't. Everything moves and everything changes and everything is linked to, to each other with behaviors which we're only just beginning to understand in some, in some coral reef situations. And all of it, especially a coral reef, is threatened. We'll talk about that after the news break. 1-800-242-2828 in the Twin Cities, 651-227-6000. If you're with us online, you're at work or you're at home, and you're listening online today, go to minnesotapublicradio.org and click on Send a Question to Jennifer in Casson. Good morning, Jennifer. You're on mid-morning. Um, thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to ask if, it's, if your guest is going to try to... Um, set up any kind of photography shots of the giant squids that they've recently been able to actually get photographs proof of. Hmm. And I'll take my question off the air. Thanks for the question. A giant squid is the holy grail of all underwater photographers. Why? It's elusive. It's giant. It's a monster. It smells of ammonia. It lives (laughs) in the deep sea. Uh, And uh, they finally got, the Japanese finally got a picture of it uh, from one of their submarines. Uh, it's really part of what my other colleague at the National Geographic, uh, Emery Kristoff, has done with his life, is to explore the seas below the realm of 200 feet. And, of course, to get the giant squid, for instance, it's postulated that they're living along the sides of seamounts in New Zealand, feeding on schools of orange roughy with eyes the size of dinner plates. My gosh. Uh, you sure you want to get a photo- uh, photograph of that? enveloping a submarine, which I'm in, I don't know. It's the same sort of elevator kind of uh, uh, fear, claustrophobic fear that I have. But on the other hand, uh, there are um, there are Humboldt squids that uh, people like Howard Hall and, and uh, Brian Scarry have photographed in the uh, Sea of Cortez that have come up out of the deep. They're about six feet long and, and another six or eight feet of tentacles, and they have grasped photographers and tried to haul them back down. Gosh with their club-like suckers, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing, the old giant squid, but I seem to be stuck on gobies and <laughs> crocodiles and things like that. David Dubelay is with us this morning. Back to the phones and to Stephen in Fairbow. Good morning, Stephen. You're on mid-morning. Morning. Thank you. Mm-hmm. As I'm listening, I'm thinking of a goalie that waits, 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 and then there's finally a shot. Um, how do you, um, it seems to be a business of patience. Um, what do you say to yourself? Uh, what are you thinking, and how do you encourage others for the incredible patience that's required? Good question. That's a, that's a wonderful question. Sometimes a lot of pictures have a lot of patience. Some of my colleagues have a lot more patience than, than I would. Uh, for instance, my colleague Flip Nicklin, who spent days and days and weeks and even months on the Arctic ice waiting for narwhals and Ended up shooting a story, and this was in the days of film that had only about uh, less than 60 rolls of film in, in, the, in the space of um, almost three months on the ice. That's patience. Uh, in a coral reef system, you have patience up to a certain point, but there's too many other things going on. It's like a, a, a child given, um, given 
10 minutes in Toys R Us. You can't concentrate on one thing. It's impossible. Okay, uh, I have a twist on yeah. Stephen's question, yeah. David, which is when you're just drifting and you're not necessarily out there to get the key shot of the story, do you do you let your mind roam and and when it does, what are you thinking about? It's a good, it's a good question, but underwater as much as you're drifting around, the concentration has to be fairly fierce. Uh, all the time. All the time. You're looking, hunting, looking, hunting, looking, looking, looking. Or you're sitting and, and waiting, as Stephen said, with this ultimate patience, lying on the bottom, waiting for a goby to stick his head out of a, a hole in the sand, waiting for something to happen. Sometimes you leave a camera in one place and go off and look for something else to return to the camera, which is all set up to take a picture of this one fish that's in a hole. Uh, for instance, a comet or a goby or something like that. But as far as drifting and dreaming, the dreams have to be very short and sharp and come into the picture as you're making it. In other words, things that the piece of color that I remembered when I was eight years old, staring at a painting in the Metropolitan or something like that, will come in sideways into a picture. It's a uh, it's in very m much like uh, the Marx Brothers, and I'm thinking of uh, Groucho rather than Carl, um, kind of comedy where everything comes in at one point, one time, um, and everything has to be combined. There's the idea of, of left field, something coming out of left field that you have no idea that's coming, and yet it has to be combined into this image. All right. Let's go back to the phones to Dan yeah. in Egan. Hi, Dan. You're on Good Morning. Hi. Your question? Um, how do you deal with the water pressure when you go down deep? We are, uh, Dan, under, under water right now. The water is obviously an atmosphere of air. It's not water, but it's air. And pressure changes all the time. Fortunately, the human body is made of water, except for certain hollow spaces like the lungs and the sinuses. And when you deal with that, you simply force air into your station canal. That's that little canal that runs from the back of your throat up into your ear, as it were, that equalizes your eardrum, and that equalizes the pressure. Deeper, a lot of things change. Uh, the gas we breathe and, and the air, nitrogen, as it were, becomes narcotic. Uh, oxygen becomes poisonous. So if you dive deeper, you have to change the mixture of air that you breathe. That's called technical diving. Uh, we don't do very much of it because there's so much in the upper 150 feet of water that we concentrate on, both Jennifer and I. But uh, water pressure is not a factor. Time is a factor. And because of physiological constraints, in other words, things like the bends, you only have a brief amount of time in the ocean, underwater, every day. A six-hour day underwater is an enormously long day. Trying to be a journalist for six hours on land and covering your, your subject is almost impossible. By the way, if you'd like to listen to some of the other conversations that we've had uh, in this National Geographic series, you can go to the Minnesota Public Radio uh, website and go to the mid-morning page and look in the archives. There's also my conversation with Bill Allard is there, as uh, David Dubelai and, and I were talking about here. Let's back go, go back to the phones and to Bill in Rochester. Hi, Bill. You're on mid-morning. Uh, yes, I'm enjoying the program a great deal. Okay. Uh, I have a question you. about uh, your uh, circuits that you use underwater. Do you use rebreathers to avoid making bubbles to spook the fish? 
We don't. Uh, and we're just, I'm just thinking about that right now is that I would love to have rebreathers to use, but um, basically we're, we're staying with mostly scuba at this point. Rebreathers may play a, a part in our future a lot. A lot of other photographers are using them. And one of the things is you have a longer time. You can go deeper. You don't make uh, noise to scare the fish. The bad news about rebreathers is if you make a mistake, you die. Uh, a scuba tank, a regular scuba tank with a Cousteau-Gagnon valve, which is basically the same valve that does everything, is one of the great inventions of the world. It's about as simple as a doorknob. Even a doorknob is a little bit more complicated in some respects uh, than a, uh, a regulator on a scuba tank. It doesn't fail, and, and all the years I've been diving, I've had failures once or twice. So it's something you don't have to think about and lets me think about equipment and the picture itself. When you go to rebreathers, you have another layer of thought process, which uh, is, as it turns out, very, very important. David, let's talk about what's happening with coral reefs. I, I read a, an article recently in which the journalist said that global warming, among all of the other issues that are damaging coral reefs, is a problem because this warming water of the ocean is killing some of the coral. Is that right? Here's what happens with global warming and why a reef in many cases is a bioindicator of what's happening with the, fa uh, with the planet. As the water temperature rises on certain coral reef systems, and I, and I say this is because this is fairly new knowledge, the algae and the tissues of all coral, and all coral has an algae called zooxanthellae. It's what powers the coral, not the coral feeding itself, but this algae uh, basically turning sunlight into energy powers a coral. And when coral bleaches, for some reason, this algae, this zooxanthellae, departs. So the coral turns white and dies. Uh, and it has to deal with rising temperatures. In other places, in other reef systems, if there is a constant influx of water and a high degree of, of, uh, of uh, tide, in other words, a, a, higher, a higher tide uh, uh, situation, there may be less coral bleaching. But yes, coral bleaching is a problem, and yes, global warming is a problem. The coral reef system, though, suffers from something uh, a little bit more direct right now. What is that? And that is simply overfishing. Uh, we have, in a very Alice in Wonderland way, eaten every one, taken all the oysters away, taken all the abalone away from California, but that's a minor problem compared with what's happening in the richest reefs in the world, in Indonesia, the Philippines, uh, the western part of uh, Papua New Guinea, and some in Malaysia, where the live fishing trade has taken key species off the reef systems. And when you take key species off, and this is everything from giant bumphead wrasse to all the groupers to sharks, the reef system changes and changes in ways that we are not really predicting right now. Reefs may have a very long, long kind of a, a system or a curve uh, of life. And uh, we don't quite understand that now. But you can go to the most distant reefs in this coral Eden of Indonesia, and you will not find these key species. They're captured by, by, by uh, fishermen. Uh, they're taken in boats and live wells to Hong Kong, to Singapore, to Shanghai, uh, to Taipei, and eaten in restaurants 
for enormous prices. And the fishermen, of course, now get paid in dollars, which is a revelation, or not dollars, but cash, as it mm-hmm. were, which is a revelation in their uh, way of life. A village that once supported, uh, that a reef system would support a 100 people can no longer even possibly support a 1,000 people, which the villages have expanded to. Everything changes, and the reefs are suffering from it. The reefs, as you know, are the jewels of our planet, uh, and they're in trouble. You mentioned uh, when you were talking about that one of, you named a, a certain kind of fish a humphead wrasse. You have a picture of that in the in the Great Barrier Reef book, don't you? It's a, it's an enormous fish. It has basically it can grow up to five hundred pounds or even larger. They turn blue green. They're sought after um, in in Asia for their for their flesh and even their lips. Uh, it's a highly delicious fish. People pay two hundred and fifty dollars a plate for that. Wow! Uh, so there's an, a huge impetus to to eat these things. Uh, the fish looks a little bit. At, I mean, it has the a body of a huge fish with the head of the uh, the uh, comedian Henny Youngman on it. <laughs> but. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a key species uh, on the reef system. Let's go back to the phones and take a call from Fred in Minneapolis. Hi, Fred. Thanks for waiting. Uh, thank you. Say, uh, I'm a, uh, an amateur photographer in the, in the clearest sense of the word. I have a boat in the Bahamas, and I spend a lot of time in the Exumas. I'm a diver, but most of my time now is snorkeling. I have a 1,000 pictures I've taken underwater with my little digital camera in a, in a case, mostly uh, the tail of a fish that's kind of vague. I mean, do you have any hints for, uh, I mean, is there any way I can ever get a picture that I can show my friends? Is there a book that I could get? Uh, I have snorkel stuff. I have a brownie thread lung. I have uh, a little pony that I can sit in the bottom with, but I don't get anything. Fred, no one wants to see your photographs of the rear ends of fish. Is that the deal? No. No, actually, they're kind of cute, but mine are very foggy. (laughs) What do you think, David? For every picture I've taken of a head of a fish, I've got a thousand of them, uh, as they say, like beer trucks heading south. (laughs) Really? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Even now? Even even now? As expert as you are at this? Fish hate to have their pictures taken. They're like two-year-olds or or uh, certain celebrities, but they really dislike having their pictures taken. You're on a monster underwater, even in your brownies, third lung, and uh, even with a snorkel, here's this great creature, much larger than them, and the first thing they want to do is get the hell out of the way. Uh, other species will come and investigate, uh, and sometimes it just takes a bit of patience to, to wait and sit and watch, and they'll come in and try to get that, that as they say, decisive moment where they're looking at you. I, I did a book for Fiden called Fish Face. It's a small book. It's a collection of my fish portraits over a number of years. But every one of them I, I consider a piece of luck. There is no um, sitting there and waiting for the intimacy of the, of the gaze of the fish. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so to Fred, you would say it really does come back to patience, it, just it, waiting. It comes back to patience and also observing what they're going to do and how they, uh, for instance, gobies uh, uh, that live in the sand will turn around and back and go backwards into their holes and if you wait they'll come out and you can photograph them you might need a slightly longer lens to do portraits like a a, a, a tele macro lens that can get in close and yet is a slightly telephoto to get closer to the fish 
uh, fish portraiture and fish behavior is the hardest thing in all of underwater photography. Let's take another call from Susanna in St. Louis Park. Hi, Susanna. Thanks for waiting. Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. This is uh, very lighthearted. It's uh, about my grandson, who's five, who is just enthralled with killer whales. And I was wondering if your guest uh, could make a recommendation for a book or a picture that would have graphic, realistic pictures of a killer whale or of the killer whales. Okay. Have you taken any photographs of killer whales? I've taken very, very few photographs of killer whales in the one picture I did do, I was covering another story that I on aquariums. I photographed them in, in aquaria, which is in many ways cheating. Uh, there's are there are killer whale uh, books on the market. Uh, my friend Flip Nicklin has uh, a few uh, few images in some of the books on killer whales. Uh, Jim Darling is an author on on a book on killer whales. Uh, I can't remember the titles right now. Uh, a lot of the work on killer whales has been done in uh, Seattle, Tacoma, uh, Vancouver area, where there are pods of them that uh, people go out and see. But, you know, killer whales are in all seas. This is the most in- mm. intriguing thing. There's uh, occasionally people in the Bismarck Archipelago in New Guinea, in this wonderful warm, the warmest seas in the world, will see pods of killer whales on one, mm. one group of divers got very lucky. They, they came into a pot of killer whales. They got off the boat. They were waiting for the killer whales. The killer whales went down deep, out of sight, far down, down, maybe 2,000 feet, into a school of hammerhead sharks, and one of them came up with a hammerhead shark in its mouth. So occasionally you can see these things. They're uh, extraordinary animals, even if they are the color of golf shoes. You have photographed sharks for a long time. Do you do it in a cage? Is that the only way to do it? I am, Carrie, on the shark beat, and I have been for for (laughs) years and years because they're a great fascination, and I had a wonderful partnership with uh, the late Peter Benchley, Mm -hmm. author of Jaws, uh, who uh, wrote wrote Jaws in 1974, and it became uh, a touchstone for the rest of his work preserving uh, the ocean, preserving sharks. Uh, Sharks, as you know, have... uh, uh, been decimated by humans, mostly for the shark fin soup trade. To photograph sharks is, um, uh, for the most part, you basically go where the sharks are and hope that and hope they're going to be where you want them to be. To photograph white sharks, you have to photograph them on your terms rather than their terms, which means you have to put a little bit of bait in the water and mm. hopefully they'll swim to you. Otherwise, you would wait a half a lifetime and see these ghosts come out of the blue, and um, there's a chance that you might be eaten in the, in the time you photographed the shark, but rarely have I seen white sharks in open ocean without um, without having any kind of um, bait or situation in the water. And, of course, when you have a bait in the water, the shark is going to come in and want to eat things, especially anything that's moving and alive, and that's when you go into a shark cage. You know, we had another um, photographer here, I think with the National Geographic series, if I remember, and he told a story about having photographed elephants for years, but he told this story about the one time that he got too close to the elephant, and the elephant turned around and charged him and slashed him and threw him around, and 
I wondered if you've had a situation like that where in some ways you're lulled shooting sharks into a sense of um, non-anxiety and suddenly the situation changes in a second. Sharks are always like that. There's always a, you have to have a kind of a situational awareness underwater when things get a little bit tough, especially in large groups of sharks. And then you back away and say, okay, time to get out. And that's happened. But one of the things that happened was I was photographing a great white shark from a shark cage. And we did something wonderful. We put the shark cage on the bottom. And this is in the South Neptune Islands in Australia. On the bottom of the ocean. We, it was about a 40, 50 foot bottom with beautiful um, uh, seaweed and seagrasses going back and forth like a meadow, like a meadow of hay but green. And the white shark was moving around the bottom, around the cage. It was about a 12-footer, and it was single, and uh, I wanted to go and photograph in the grass. So I got out of the cage and lay down in the grass next to the cage <laughs> with my foot touching the cage, as it were, like you're trying to steal a base in baseball because you're always going to be safe. You can just pop back in. <laughs> right. And the shark came in. And it was lovely light, and I was photographing, photographing, and I shot about a half a roll. I said, okay, time to get back into the cage. And I looked over my shoulder, and I'd moved a little bit away, and the cage was gone. It was, it was um, almost at the edge of visibility. What happened was an enormous swell came in over the reef, picked the boat up, anchor, cage, and everything, and deposited it 50 feet away. And I said, okay, well, I'll just swim back to the cage. It's no problem. The shark is coming in. I'll keep my eye on it. The shark sensed exactly what the hell was going on right there. <laughs> um, and then I said, well, swimming back's no problem. And I looked down. And I had no fins. You don't have fins in the cage. So it was like running away from a monster chasing you across a hardwood floor as a child, and you're wearing uh, brand-new white socks, and every, every, <laughs> every, foot you, every footstep you make, you go one backwards. And it was like that. I would push the shark away with the camera hit the shark with a camera, it would come in close, and it was a big shark, it began to be more and more aggressive, and I finally got back to the cage, my friend Rodney Fox, the great shark expert, was in the cage, looking at this, slightly horrified, <laughs> sort of yanked me by the back of the tank, and put me in the cage, the shark came in and slammed into the cage, oh and bit the cage, so it can happen, uh, on the other hand, people like Andre Hartman in South Africa, watch the situation, and regularly get out of the cage, and swim along with the shark, wow, so it depends on the mood. Is there anything that you, besides the giant squid, is there anything that is down there? Then you know it's down there somewhere, and but you've never been able to get a photograph of it, but you really want to. Oh, there's, there's so many things that like are there. Like what? Everything from shipwrecks that I haven't covered in, in the, in the Mid-Pacific and Truck Lagoon that I'd like to photograph. I'm, I'm very, very interested in them. Uh, Second World War and, and uh, working with an author here in Minneapolis, John Parcells, who just finished a book on the Battle of Midway. I like a, I like to do that kind of work. Um, I'm very much interested in, in the Southwest Pacific, always because there's such a richness there of everything that goes on. And of course, there's the constant addiction of what underwater photography is all about. Addiction in what way? The sea runs through us, myself and uh, my partner Jennifer, like a river, uh, constant and there, and it's uh, part of your life. When you when you when you dive, you become uh, addicted to this idea of, of the weightlessness and the beauty and the intrigue and the life and the patterns in the sea, or in water of any kind, whether it's the flooded forests of. Uh, 
northern Minnesota or the waters of Botswana or the Amazon or a barrier reef or uh, uh, anywhere else in the world. Uh, that's, what, uh, that's what becomes very, very interesting. Uh, I want to see these things. Yes, I'd like to see the giant squid, but I also like to see the great schools of squid that are fished off New Zealand. Um, I'd like to um, spend more quality time with great white sharks and um, photograph them, not in color, but in black and white. Uh, black and white is my first love in many ways in photography. That's how I started out, and that's how I'd uh, not like to finish up, but like to continue to shoot because it's because of the challenge. David, will there come a time because of the the um, pressures that underwater diving puts on the body, the rigors of this? Do you think there will come a time when you can't do this anymore, or is this the kind of thing that you can see yourself doing with no limit? You know, it's it's a very good question because as we all get older, we say, when is this? Uh, when is our life going to come to an end? Doing what we do. But it's strange. Underwater, you are weightless. And being weightless, it gives you an extension of time. Uh, Dr. Eugenie Clark, who is now um, 86 years old, is going back to Papua New Guinea, leading trips there after recovering from from a lot of difficult underwater, uh, medical, not underwater, but medical problems and things like that. You continue your life underwater. Stanton Waterman, the famous uh, filmmaker, continues to go underwater. So the answer is no. Uh, yeah, we're we're a first generation. No yeah, we're a first generation of people in the sea. Actually, I'm like a, a first and a half, or almost a second generation. It's only been sixty years, really, uh, for people going into the sea and spending time in the sea because of uh, because of the Aqualung and the invention of Cousteau. David, it's been a pleasure to have you here. What an interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie.